point that Ralph Houtstein raises here by Rustin, this facing certain reality. And I, I saw something quite real. Uh, the sign most often seen during the march, the Washington march, was jobs and freedom, more often than any other sign. Obviously, one meaningless without the other. Boils down to that again, doesn't it, Brad? Yes, obviously, uh, if a man has all the rights in the world for, you know, public accommodations, he can go anywhere he wants, but he has no money in his pocket, this man has no freedom. Uh, furthermore, he has, there's another thing he needs, which is, it goes with freedom, and that is dignity. And a man who uh, does not feel that he is in a position to make any contribution to society, but is receiving everything from society, has no dignity. Now, therefore, in a situation where it is largely impossible to put people back to work again, the society has another very, very real contradiction before it. It must both provide for men, but must provide for them with dignity. And therefore, I take the view that uh, you men must have what they need, that is to say, a guaranteed income. But this is only possible, it seems to me, with any sense of spiritual dignity at the point that there is also a profound redefinition of what work itself is. And uh, I think the answer to the question as to how you get at this is very complicated. But there's one thing I know you have to have. There are two things. One is a group of people who are examining these questions intellectually and who dig deep. But simultaneously, you need people who are the victims of these things uh, actually in movement. Now, as long as the poor do not know they are poor, as long as they can be hidden under a rug, uh, then uh, the society uh, will not, elements in the society will not come to their aid. And, and uh, if you don't move yourself, nobody moves for you. That's one of our problems. But I think equally it's a fact that uh, the uh, intellectuals of the society, the economists, sociologists, and others, uh, are afraid, uh, by and large, to tackle these problems and to tell the truth about them. Uh, in this connection, you know, it's often said the Negro is so much better off. Well, what's he raising all this fuss now? Much better off than he has been before. Does this really reflect the fact? Uh, the Negro is not better off than he was before. In fact, a very important date was May 1954. Now, if you'll remember, uh, since May 1954, the things Negroes are most concerned with, all of them are worse. There are more Negroes unemployed than in 1954. There are more Negroes in segregated schools than in 1954. And there are more slums. And they are 10 years older. And they therefore have more rats and more roaches. So that the situation is not. But even if there were objectively measurable progress, this still would not save us. 
because in 10 years, 10 more years, the expectation and the demand would be greater. And uh, the society is constantly teaching him that he must have more. Billions spent in advertising, telling him what he must have. So that objectively it isn't true, but even if it were, the situation would not be relieved. I think one of the figures we heard, for example, that was interesting is that we're spending as much or more money today, currently, on advertising as we are for education. Right. And in addition, we are spending uh, infinitely more money uh, keeping Negroes in poverty than President Johnson is spending for remove in his war on poverty. That's the saddest part. Well, I mean by that, if you consider the amount of money which is given uh, in relief in making people feel undignified and unwanted, if you take just that figure to say nothing of the billion, millions we are spending because the poor are more sick than others in getting them in and out of hospitals, but on an undignified basis, where they feel like worms and not people. If one just considers figures of this kind, then one sees very clearly that the war on poverty figure is a joke. It is not a war unless, you know, it's the kind of war children have with, be, uh, with uh, water pistols. I, I would like to, uh, I'd like to uh, stay on this topic a little bit, but take the color out of it for one moment. I've been preoccupied with the effects of the so-called cybernation revolution, and <clears throat> when I expressed my pessimism a while ago, it is because I have observed that uh, there is no uh, political receptivity to the proposition that uh, machines are putting men out of work. The uh, official response to this throughout the newspapers, throughout the establishment, the administration, throughout society, is that we're in a sort of temporary lull. Something, something will happen. Something good will happen. Nobody knows quite what it'll be. Perhaps the government can make something happen by tax cuts and so on. Uh, however, uh, this is only a part of the story. I, uh, I hold the view that all of these people are wrong. We are in the presence of something absolutely new. Bayard says we're in the presence of the, uh, uh, not the possibility, but the reality that uh, machines are depriving large numbers of uh, Americans of uh, jobs, white and colored both, and that this is a permanent situation, uh, not one that is going to be uh, uh, dealt with by the usual medications of fiscal policy and so on. Uh, <clears throat> Now, this bespeaks a certain lack of political imagination, A. Second, the political imagina uh, imagination is really stagnant when you consider it in a at a little bit different level. Not whether uh, these machines, in fact, are doing this, but whether they have the possibility of doing this. This is a, this is a situation that you would think any intelligent society would leap on with great glee. Can we really turn this into a slave society with these, with these marvelous machines, these marvelous procedures, the slaves to do those disagreeable jobs? Replacing the Athenian human slaves. Certainly, certainly. The Athenians built a great, uh, 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 built a great 
civilization on, uh, on the basis of slavery. Uh, why can't we do the same thing? But the, <clears throat> the, the political imagination is so, uh, uh, is so wedded to the notion that the economic machine exists for some reason of its own, some reasons of its own. One of the principal reasons being it's the only way that we have thought of to distribute uh, income, uh, uh, goods, uh, income and goods to uh, people. Well, now, if you get to the position where you say the, uh, uh, we can have all this wealth-producing machinery working very efficiently, turning out vaster quantities of, of goods and services every uh, year, if we'll only uh, step up our efforts to put them into effect and so on, all it requires is an act of political imagination to, uh, to take advantage of this and to get rid of some of these disagreeable things, these undemocratic uh, aspects of our society. But we see no, uh, uh, no political receptivity at this point uh, in the slightest to, to these ideas. And it's for that reason that I, I believe that uh, while this is, while this, this to me is the uh, archetypal situation. These things are happening right in our midst now, and everyone is saying, no, it ain't so. Something, we'll muddle through this some way, and we'll get back to the good old days of supply and demand and, and so on. And it seems to me to portend nothing but disaster for the country and for the economic system uh, and the people who are managing the economic system. I would think that Part of the problem that creates these inhibitions to which Mr. Ferry's been referring grows out of our, uh, some of our commitments uh, 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 way back. Uh, you know, God chased Adam out of the Garden of Eden and said, you'll have to earn your living by the sweat of your brow. And Calvin came along and turned this into an ethic which in effect said that you don't, you, you, you work to, to eat. And now all of us- If eat without work as we know it, that would be sinful. Got, yeah, and you're guilty. And uh, we get ourselves into a situation where uh, we used to say in the packing plants, you know, that when the boss came around and slapped you on the back, he wasn't doing that because he wanted to, he was, wanted to be a good guy, but he was wanting, doing that to find out if you were sweating enough and working hard enough. And uh, our whole notion of work has always been based on the proposition of hard physical labor. Uh, in recent years, there have been certain areas of life in which we've accepted the notion that uh, work may be the work of the mind rather than of labor. But this is not possible for our total society, we say. And so, in effect, uh, an elite springs up which wants to retain its sense of being elite, and they're perfectly willing to continue this kind of a process and not to exercise the imagination necessary. And you know, you know many of these things don't require such a great break. For example, when we first issued this Triple Revolution Statement, uh, we observed, among other things, that one of the necessary requirements for any kind of a decent society was that we break this chain of connecting work and income, which is not the product of any inexorable economic law. This is a man-imposed requirement. So we said break it and provide people with income. 
And there are millions of people, literally, who have income without work. Some of them because their ancestors worked once upon a time. As a matter of fact, a very substantial number of them. Others because they may be on relief for so the work guilt, that they've guilt, done before. So guilt felt in one case, perhaps not in the other, perhaps guilt in both cases. Well, guilt may be there, but the guilt is the product of a, the value system of a society which says that if you don't do this, you're guilty of something. Never yeah. quite sure what we're guilty of. That's, that's what produces this, this undignified status that Baird referred to just a little while ago. This is the other side of the coin of this Calvinistic coin, a man who does not work, who has to take public largesse, uh, it must, he's got to be put in an undignified position. Uh, he's got to be put, put on a dole and known as an object of charity. The notion of, uh, uh, the notion that people can uh, receive uh, income and live dignified uh, lives just because it is now possible is something beyond the American imagination right now. Well, can't this guilt, uh, this Calvinistic guilt, be taken care of with the phrase, the idea that uh, Bayard Rustin introduced earlier, redefinition of work itself, that is not idleness. We may think of this other kind of work, the redefinition of work, then. Well, I can give you an example. Uh, I'm sorry to have to be so conservative about it. But I believe that the work of young people is to learn, to be productive to the society. I thereby conclude that every high school and college student should have society purchase his books, pay his tuition, and educate him. But that is not enough. That is his work for which he should be paid. And therefore, in addition to paying him to go to, to uh, paying for his books and tuition, he should receive a salary for his work, which is to study, to learn to be a constructive member of society. Yes, I, I think that this is what I mean in part when I say work must be redefined. This connection bear the figure that of the dropouts, which everybody looks at with alarm today and says this is the structural unemployment problem of the future, one-eighth of them are dropouts for economic reasons. And that runs into a very, very substantial number of people. Now, uh, uh, we, we, said, we, said as a, uh, we said after the Second World War that we were going to provide a GI Bill. This was in payment partially for the service that was rendered to the country and the Army. But isn't the service of an educated mind devoted to making a better society as important as the other? Really, why, why, what is wrong with the concept of a GI Bill in peacetime? Uh, some are dropouts uh, because of a contradiction in our educational system. The educational system says to a youngster, you are to go to school exclusively in order that you should get a job when you get out. Now with automation, there's no job for him. He knows it. He, he is not a fool. Why should he stay in school? Now, when work has been redefined so that he's paid to do his work as a student, there is an incentive then to stay in school independent of work as we now know it, because work will have been redefined. And I think that uh, we, we have to think in very broad new terms. 
Now, if anybody wants to say to me, this is utopian, I am prepared to say precisely. And there are times when a new element has come into the stream of history where that which is not utopian is not relevant. Uh, I think you might put, let me put a little, uh, I, I wish to, uh, I wish to go all the way along with Bayard's uh, suggestion about paying young people to go to work just for the precise reason that he stated. This, to go to school, this is work. And the way really to look at this is uh, not to look at it uh, uh, under, in a sort of utopian gloss, but to consider the alternative. If these young people were not in school, uh, engaged in pr the productive work of learning, uh, they would be someplace else. They would be maintained by society in some other way. Uh, they would be maintained as uh, uh, perhaps in prisons, uh, perhaps in uh, welfare centers, uh, perhaps in that uh, miserable business of youngsters wandering around the country trying to find a job in a, uh, uh, in a society which is foreclosing jobs uh, right and left. The most important consideration uh, about, uh, uh, about uh, his proposition is that all of these children are going to live not 35 or 40 years more. They are all going to live, if they get to be 20, they're going to live at least another 55 to 60 years. Now, which is better? Which is a better investment for society? An investment in these kids in, uh, 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 in uh, learning how to skunk the welfare, learning how to get a uh, sort of, when you're really hungry, uh, uh, how to get uh, sent to jail on a 10-day misdemeanor rap, learning how to uh, 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 pick some food out of the supermarket and get it out on, uh, in your pant leg in order to eat that night. This is a very practical consideration. I, I, I have no objection to utopian statements. I'm a great advocate of utopia. I, the real question here really is, what is utopian? Isn't the euphoria in which we live today a lot more utopian than what we're talking about, really? That is, if people are adverse to accepting utopia as something good. Beyond this, I think it should be noted that when we talk now about sending kids to school so that they can get better educated for jobs. We should remember that some computer scientists of a good deal of reputation making the observation that uh, in what they call the foreseeable future would take with what is available in the form of cybernetic, cybernetic knowledge now 2% of the entire population could produce all the goods and food and run our society. Um, the others wouldn't be engaged in what would be called redefined work. Right. Which we may have Well, either pleasure. that, either that or these managers uh, of uh, our society today are apt to be the first victims of this kind of unemployment. They're not going to like that very well. Well, long before we ever got to any 2% or 10% or 20%, yeah, the entire that. character of this, uh, of this society would change very, very radically. You don't have to go very much further than the situation that we're in now, where we have an official rate 
of five to six million, a figure that confuses, uh, uh, confuses all the economists because they say we've got a prosperous country, but here is a stubborn, unprosperous statistic we can't explain. In addition to that five million, at least another five to eight million, according to people in the administration themselves, we're close to 10 to 14 to 15 million people without work, period, without work. Well, you're describing a, uh, 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 you're describing a real depression. Now we're not even talking about the poverty-stricken uh, sector at all. At some stage, at some stage in this development, it seems to me you're going to have a, a radical change. You cannot possibly think of a nation in which, uh, to use that extreme figure, there will be 98% of the people on the dole and 2% dispensing the dole to the other 98%. This is a conception of democratic society that's absolutely unbelievable. I don't think that you can go very much beyond uh, the situation in which, uh, uh, in which we find ourselves now. I think that you'll, you'll be in great trouble the moment uh, this, uh, uh, this official un un uh, unemployment figure rises above 7 or 8 percent. And I believe that the real, the, the real turn in American society uh, uh, will come when a catastrophe or a semi-catastrophe occurs. Uh, that is when the, uh, when the secure middle class, the bourgeois, so to speak, all of a sudden gets hit very hard by cybernation. When the accountants, when the bookkeepers, when the clerks, when all of those people now known as middle management uh, begin to see that their situation is just the same as the situation of the people who have already been displaced by machines, at that moment when all of these people are threatened, and they're all threatened now in a curious way, Many of them are not being replaced, but their children are not being hired either. This is what is called uh, uh, hidden firings. At this point, it seems to me, uh, you're going to have a very remarkable change. This is going to be a sort of, inf uh, a sort of forced growth in political imagination in this country. You know, if you put the civil rights issue into this kind of a framework, it ought to become increasingly clear to all white America that as it deals with the problems that are the outgrowth of the civil rights movement, it's dealing with its own problems. The problem that the Negro faces today is not just the Negro's problem. It's all of America's problem. And in dealing with it, all of America has got to assume the responsibility for finding a solution that will solve the Negro's problem, but in the process of that, understand that he's solving his own problem. You know, the political lessons of the so-called protest movement now will not be lost on these people. These are the people right now who are saying, I wish those fellows wouldn't demonstrate so much. They make me nervous and uncomfortable. And it's a terrible thing. Why, why, uh, if they'll just take it easy, uh, we'll, uh, we'll tend to that after a bit. But this is the politicizing of America, as I described it before, and these lessons may turn out to be very, very valuable to them, uh, to this, uh, this dispossessed middle class, as I uh, think it will be, and in very short order, too. 
It'll be very valuable to them because uh, you must recognize that the sit-down is the Negro's newspaper. Recall what Bertrand Russell said when he was asked why he sat down in the middle of Whitehall or wherever he sat down in front of the House of Commons. He said, I sit down here because this is my way of drawing attention. I can't get into the newspapers with reasonable arguments of this, uh, of the case for kind of uh, a national disarmament policies that I think are required. Uh, the newspapers are the voice of the status quo. Uh, they will not pay attention to the, these reasonable arguments. We have to dramatize it. That's why I'm sitting in the middle of the streets. Perhaps he said it to you when you interviewed him. Yeah, I this, forgot. Is still, this is still another dimension, isn't it? It's freedom of, uh, the Negro's fight is the fight for freedom of the press. And this, it seems to me, uh, these people who are now sitting securely uh, in their accountants' jobs and uh, so on, this whole great strata of American society known as middle management, this will not be lost on them. Right now it makes them uh, apprehensive and annoyed. But uh, when you begin having this group sitting down in, uh, in front of public institutions and saying, what about us? At this point, I think uh, you're going to have a mammoth difference in the United States. Well, Mr. Ferry and Mr. Helsland, this hour, I'd like to ask uh, Bayard Rustin the last question. And perhaps this can be, I don't mean this to be Pollyannish at all, but in view of what you said, when a cyber nation moves in many ways, it's wonders to perform here, middle management and the white, white collar will find himself in the spot the Negro is now. And if he sees this, uh, you spoke of work as a student, you know, the student learning is work. Now, suppose you do past, uh, past student days. What else will be redefined work after school for the uh, man who has gone through school now? What else is redefined work for this middle management guy, uh, the white, white collar, the Negro? New kinds of work as we don't know it now. Well, I think uh, basically, it is imperative to see what a true contribution to the society and to uh, the nation is. And that is that people are become mature, that they have emotional stability. Uh, now, in a situation where you can, where a very small number of people can produce the needs of the society, then it seems to me becoming a mature individual. Uh, let us say if it's through painting, through music. You know, never forget that Richard Wright wrote the best short stories I think ever produced in the United States, except for O. Henry, while he was on WPA. I was on that same project. You see? Now, uh, I think that uh, whatever we can find for men to do that gives them satisfaction and makes them mature people as a contribution to society. Now, that's very vague, but I think that is the beginning point. May I, may I make one? Uh, I'd like to add to that. I believe that uh, the, greatest, the greatest enterprise uh, is politics. I believe that men uh, can begin to govern themselves sensibly. We might be able to make something out of democracy. My answer to that question, I don't quibble with what he said. I would like merely to expand it. Uh, my answer to that uh, question would be politics and poetry. Uh, there are not very many people engaged in the business of government. This is our most important single enterprise. Not, not, this is a badly undergoverned country. Perhaps we could begin to discuss seriously together the conditions of our common existence. 
And, you know, we have a, a, an experience that we can fall back on in this connection. Uh, uh, in Aristotelian Greece, the man who was regarded as doing the hardest and most important work was the man of leisure. He was the man who studied and who engaged in the art of politics, while the slave did the subsistential work of society. Now, if the machine replaces the slave, Perhaps all men can be men of learning and I of politics. You, maybe, it's a, maybe the Thurber story is a good one to end on. Maybe the, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the civilization of the future, Thurber's wife would not have to ask him that famous question. The kind of civilization that I think may, uh, uh, may be uh, ahead of us is one in which uh, Thurber's wife would not speculate as uh, he reported at one time, she speculated. She said she could not believe that he was really at work when he was looking out of the window. And I suspect that in a good civilization, a great deal of work is going to be done by people who are looking out of the window. Well, the, there, the, the parable of Thurber and also the work of thinking. And uh, perhaps this is the key word, thinking. And I imagine this is what uh, the ad hoc committee for the Triple Revolution is all about that uh, to reach with a certain basic truth that is there, that some fantasists call utopia that is real. And let's hope that in time, that is with time too, beating the clock, we can reach this horizon that, that Bayard Rustin spoke about and W.H. Ferry and Ralph Helstein. Thank you very much, gentlemen.